Welcome to episode 8 of the Via Emmaus podcast, where we'll be discussing the Old Testament portion of this week's reading plan. My name is Anton Brooks, and I'm here with David Schrock, the pastor of preaching and theology here at Aquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. This week, we will begin looking at the book of Exodus. What are things we should know about this book? Exodus is an amazing book. Yes. Right? I remember preaching it a number of years ago and just learning so much, just kind of diving into it. So I'm just really excited about just reading through this again. Um, Again, whenever we come to a book in the Bible, it's helpful for us to see that this book uh, is set in the context of Moses' five books. Right? So Genesis is preparing the way for Exodus. Moses wrote Genesis with that purpose in mind. Uh, Exodus is going to, in some ways, leave unfinished because at the end, the glory of the Lord comes and dwells in this tabernacle that is there, and yet even Moses is not able to come into the presence of God in the tabernacle. Uh, So Leviticus is going to be needed to uh, have this series of sacrifices that are allowing the priest to come into the presence of God. So we have to read uh, this book in that context. Um, I think it's important to see that the themes that began in Genesis continue uh, in the book of Exodus, right? So we remember seeing that God was blessing a people and choosing a people uh, in Genesis. Those same people are in focus. The offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in focus now uh, multiplied greatly as they're there in Egypt. And God is going to deliver them from Egypt and, and bring salvation to them and create a covenant with them. Uh, and then he's going to come and dwell with them. Right. Right. Really. So the the big picture of Exodus is this deliverance from Egypt, a covenant that is going to be taking place, and then God's dwelling place with the people of Israel. If we can keep those things in mind, helps us to understand the book of Exodus, and really the book of Exodus helps us to understand so much in the Bible because it becomes a template for so many stories of salvation through the rest of Scripture. In Exodus one. Um, when the people of Israel were fruitful and multiplied, why did the new king of Egypt enslave the Jewish people? Yeah, so we don't know entirely who this Pharaoh is, the mm-hmm. king of uh, Egypt who, who did this. Uh, I mean, it certainly says in Exodus chapter 1 uh, that there arose in Egypt a king that did not know Joseph. Right. Right. So that could be one or two things. Either he just didn't know him at all and the good that Joseph did for the nation of Egypt. Or he just didn't care about him at all. Right. right? Yeah. You know, and we're not exactly sure what that is. Um, I think what's striking, though, and just the connection point that we see in Exodus 1 is this language of fruitful multiply. Mm. Right. I mean, so we kind of can gloss over that. And yet that was the whole point that we saw in Genesis uh, moving forward. Right? right. In the beginning, it says that, you know, made in the image of God to be fruitful and multiply. Yeah. Then that language gets passed on to Noah. Mm-hmm. And Noah is also given that command, be fruitful and multiply. And then we see that from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the command also is to have offspring, right? And the offspring of promise comes to begin to fulfill that. And then finally, in the line of Jacob and the line of Joseph, we see that they are fruitful and multiply. So God has not only commanded, but he's also beginning to fulfill these realities. And so what's amazing is in chapter 1 of Exodus, verse 7, Uh, It says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Mm -hmm. Right? So the numbers could total anywhere between 1 million and 2 million people that are in this section called Goshen and northeastern part of Egypt. Right. And so God has fulfilled his promises in this way. But of course, what is left outstanding and what will begin to take place in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers is to move God's people into God's place, mm-hmm. right? Because they have a people, but they don't have a land, 
right? That was also part of the promise, right? So in Exodus, we're going to see how God is going to come and dwell with his people. The blessing of God is going to be manifested and magnified uh, all the more. And the way that God is going to bring God's people to a blessed place in the place where God is, uh, is what we're going to begin to see. Um, just to answer your question, maybe a little bit one other way, right? As they're increasing there, you can understand perhaps the fear that yeah. is welling up in the heart of the king uh, of Egypt, the Pharaoh there. Even the text begins to speak about that. Right. And this is part of that um, spiritual warfare, that contest between the seeds. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3, right? So the seed of the serpent is now looking to persecute and to oppress the seed of the woman. And so there's the seed of faith that is trusting in God, the covenant people. But then those who are outside of the covenant, the seed of the serpent, are going to begin to persecute and to oppose. And that makes up a huge part of the storyline in the book of Exodus. So do we still struggle with that same type of spiritual warfare today? Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we do. And, and what's amazing is that we see in the New Testament the language of seed warfare, mm -hmm. right? Um, and again, this is not ethnicity. Uh, this is those who are born of God mm -hmm. and those who are not. Right, right? Yeah. And so Jesus very shockingly can say to um, the Pharisees who are from the physical tribe or the physical line of Abraham, uh, you know, your father, the devil, mm -hmm. right? He's identifying them as those who have no faith and who are opposed to the true seed of God. Mm -hmm. And like this is who they are. Uh, whereas we're going to see that those, as you come into the New Testament, uh, outside of Abraham are going to become the true sons of Abraham mm -hmm. because of their faith in Christ, right. which is an evidence that they are of the seed of the woman mm -hmm. because they are believing in this one who has come to save Jew and Gentile. Wow. So also in Exodus 1, um, we read that the Israelite midwives were asked to kill the boys born to Israelite women. For all appearances, it seemed that God rewards them for lying to Pharaoh. Is this how we should read it? Yeah, certainly seems like just the superficial reading that is there. I think it's so important, again, just to remember that this is a, this is a war story, mm. right? You can ask the question. I had a professor in seminary when we talked about some of these things who would say, so is wearing camouflage in war um, wrong? Mm. I mean, you're intentionally deceiving the enemy. Right, yeah. Right? Like, no, in warfare, even in just warfare, camouflage is just part of what it means to be at war. Mm -hmm. So in this situation here, um, they have this uh, demonically inspired king mm -hmm. who is seeking to kill the offspring of Abraham, the blessed children of God. And they're very wisely and very shrewdly uh, not doing what they're being told to do, right, yeah. right? They're being told to kill these, these children, and they're not doing it. And one of the ways that we know that God looks with pleasure on this is that he gives them children, mm -hmm. right? What's amazing is that the Pharaoh is the one who is doing everything and anything he can uh, to have his name uh, remembered. Mm -hmm. And yet there's no place in the text of Scripture where his name is brought up. Right, yeah. There's debate on which Pharaoh it is uh, in the Scriptures here, whether it's Ramses II or if it's a different one. Um, but what we have here is we have the names of these Hebrew midwives, right? Verse 15 in chapter 1, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one who is named Shifra and the other is named Pua. Like, they have their names in the eternal word of God yeah. because they're being faithful to what he has done. 
And so, again, you know, what they say in verse 16, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. So, like, what's motivating them? It's the fear of God. Mm-hmm. It's their faith in God. Like, their actions are acting out of their trust in God, and they're not trying to deceive as we would to protect ourselves, right? Right. It goes on in verse 18, So the king of Egypt called midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. So someone was like, well, they're, they're making, this, making this up. Or maybe that's true, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we, we don't see that they're being deceptive in this sort of way. And we'll get a chance to talk more about this when we come to the story of Rahab. Right. right when she also seems to be telling a lie, but again, there's warfare yeah. that is taking place there. So I think that frames the the situation slightly differently. Uh, we shouldn't look at this as a means of finding ways to protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to a spiritual warfare or warfare that is there, I think there's a place to be able to uh, to act as these uh, faithful, wise, and uh, and godly women did. Let's take a look at Exodus 2, verses 11 and 12. I'm going to go ahead and read those. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out, on, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So prior to these verses, we saw um, how Pharaoh's daughter had taken and a baby, which the baby was, of course, Moses. Mm-hmm. Um, then it jumps straight to this encounter, um, which we just read in verses 11 and 12. How did Moses know that he was an Israelite? Yeah, so if you keep reading the story in Exodus 2, you find out that the daughter of Pharaoh comes along and rescues Moses. Right. And then the sister, Miriam, uh, of Moses is actually right there. And as she is right there, uh, she's going to be able to uh, offer... Um, a nursing mother right. in Israel to be able to care for Moses, and that's exactly what happens, right? So now with the safety provided by Pharaoh's daughter, uh, Moses goes back to his mother and is raised there, and it seems as though uh, is raised there for a time where the beginning storyline of Israel is able to be shared with Moses as he is in the place with his mother mm-hmm. um, before he would then be weaned and then go into um, the house uh, of Pharaoh, right? So we don't know the whole timetable there, but clearly by the time that Moses is 40, he identifies himself with the people of Israel. It's very clear to him that this is his people. Right. And as Hebrews 11 is going to say, that he recognizes that the uh, reproach of Christ is greater treasure uh, than all the things that are there uh, in Egypt. Wow. We also see that Moses flees Egypt when he kills an Egyptian. And Genesis 9 teaches us that anyone who sheds blood should be killed. How should we understand Moses as a murderer? Yeah, I remember uh, a number of years ago um, when I was working as a janitor in a church, and above the copier at the church, there was a list of all the people in the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. And Moses, and and just how God can work in anyone's case. And in in the case of Moses, I was calling him a murderer, Right. right? And yet what's really striking is that when Moses gives the Ten Commandments or receives the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, uh, the word for uh, thou shall not kill is not the same word that is used here for this striking down 
of this Egyptian, mm. right? And even in the context of Exodus uh, chapter uh, 3 here, um, excuse me, chapter 2, what's striking about this is the fact that the person who comes up to him recognizes him as a prince and a judge over us, right? right. So Exodus chapter 2 verse 14 says, so this is the um, Egyptian asking, or the Israelite asking, he answered him, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And one of the things that's being shown here is that Moses was being rejected by the people of Israel. Mm. That God had chosen him to be the one to come and save the people of Israel, and yet he's being rejected by them. This will happen again and again as Moses continues to lead the people. And they'll be asking later again, who made you ruler over us? And so it seems as though Moses is not being portrayed here as a murderer, but rather someone who had the authority to exercise judgment in this case Mm -hmm. and even to strike this person down right so again we don't have all the details that are there um, but Moses as he is writing this I think under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is giving us a portrayal of of his own um, own backstory and experience that is not meant to portray him as a murderer Mm -hmm. uh, as much as one who has come to be a savior and a judge and a prince and a ruler Uh, and I think we should see it in that way okay In Exodus 3, God speaks to Moses through a burning bush. Is there a reason that Moses could not speak to God face to face? Yeah, so later we're going to see two things, right? Um, So this is always where we want to read earlier parts of any book with the latter parts that are there. And later in Exodus chapter 34, when Moses has asked to see the glory of God. So Mm -hmm. we ask that in Exodus 33, verse 18. Then God is going to reveal himself to Moses by putting him in the cleft of the rock. He's going to cover his face, and he's going to see his backsides, and he's going to hear the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Right, And in this way, it speaks to the fact that he can't see him face to face. Mm-hmm. And yet, in another place, it speaks to the fact that Moses spoke to God mouth to mouth. Right, He's speaking to him in a way that is unique from all the other prophets. And so I think there's just something to be said. And we'll see it actually as we're preaching through 1 Timothy, uh, the God who is immortal and invisible, mm-hmm. right, the only living God. Right, There's a sense in which God has not revealed himself to sinful mankind because sinful mankind in the presence of a holy God would be destroyed. And so what we see all throughout the Old Testament are all these means by which God reveals himself uh, through the fire, Mm -hmm. right? Through the pillar, through the tabernacle, uh, later through the prophets who are going to take on uh, actions in themselves that are portraying something of God. So Hosea Mm -hmm. is going to be a prophet who's called uniquely to go and to marry a woman who is in a life of prostitution to redeem her. And in this act, it is revealing something of God. It's preparing the way for Jesus Christ himself to come, who is the God-man who reveals to us the face of the Lord in the incarnation uh, of God. Right? So... At this point, though, it's too early in the story to see that, right? The sinfulness of of Moses is there, uh, and God has not done all that he needs to do in the Old Testament to prepare the way for the Son of God to come and to prepare the people trusting in that latter son uh, to come and to see him. After God calls Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, he looks to kill him. Let's take a look at Exodus 4, 24 through 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely 
You are the bridegroom of blood to me. So he left him alone. It was then that he said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. What is going on here? That's a great question. Yeah. What is going on here? And have you ever heard a sermon on this before? I haven't. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, this is one of the reasons why uh, expositional preaching is so good, because it forces you to have to go through this, right. right? So we're not in the book of Exodus right now, but if we were preaching through Exodus, we would have to deal with these verses. Yes. And these verses are just strange. Right. Right? Because the whole starting section of Exodus is seeing the plight of the people of Israel, seeing that God is going to save his people by means of this man Moses, and then as soon as God says to him, you're going to go and be the savior of these people, and he sends them back in, what do we find? Well, we find that God's going to kill them, mm -hmm. right? And it's like, what in the world? Well, I think that circumcision here plays a key role in helping us to understand what's going on, right? right? Because Moses is someone who had fled from the people of Israel, who goes and lives um, with the, the priest of Midian, name is Jethro, or Raul, and marries his daughter. Mm -hmm. And in this place, uh, we see that Moses does not circumcise his children, mm. right? So God now calls Moses uh, to come and to be the Savior, and yet the Savior has not done the very thing that is necessary for the people of Israel to identify themselves with the God of Abraham. Right. Wasn't that a part of the covenant? It was. Yes. Absolutely. This was the sign. This is the way that the people would pass down the covenant blessings that were there as the circumcision of the male child mm -hmm. would be saying that this child is going to be a part of this people. Right. right. Last week we talked about the fact that the way that someone could become a Jew was by undergoing circumcision or in the case of Rahab or Ruth, to marry a circumcised male in Israel, right? right? So Moses had not done that with his children. Um, don't know the reason for that. Mm -hmm. uh, but in this case, we see that, okay, first of all, the way that God is going to save does not depend on man. Right. Right. We saw that earlier with Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham is commanded to, uh, to sacrifice his son, and then God um, figuratively raises him from the dead, mm -hmm. right? Provides the sacrifice there. Similarly here, he's going to save through Moses, and yet ultimately it's not dependent upon Moses because he can even bring him to the point of death. Mm -hmm. And now we see that there's this need to circumcise him. I don't know exactly what's going on with Zipporah here, right? Right. Um, but we see that, you know, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, this idea of blood. There's, there's language of covenant that is going on there. I think what's happening is that God is bringing Moses to the place where he is coming to be perfectly in obedience to all that the covenant is found uh, with the people of Israel. Because one of the things we're going to see, we see this both in Exodus 2 and in Exodus 6, is that this is not a new covenant, this is not a new dispensation, but rather God has promised to Abraham that he's going to make him sojourn for 400 years in a foreign land, and then after that time he's going to save him. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see in Exodus 6 that it's because of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of Moses, that now he's going to save the people. Right? And so this is just part of the process there. And maybe one of the things that we see uh, just coming up before these verses in Exodus 4, verse 22, just this is really kind of gives us a big picture of what's going on in the book itself. In Exodus 4, 21, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt and see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, so that he will not let the people go. 
Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Mm. So the whole book of Exodus could be described as the battle of two firstborn sons. Right. Right? Where God is going to save his firstborn, the people of Israel, and he's going to do it by actually executing the firstborn of Egypt. And the only way that the firstborn of Israel are saved, we'll look at this next week, is through the Passover. Right. Right. And through that Passover, God's going to make the people of Israel, who are his firstborn son, a kingdom of priests. And really, one of the ways that the people of God are identified as a kingdom of priests is through their circumcision. Mm-hmm. And so now, when Moses himself has not circumcised his own sons, he say, no, 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 if you're going to be leading the people to become a kingdom of priests who are set apart, a holy nation, right. well, then you need to even start in your own house. Mm. Right? So I think there are a number wow. of pieces there. You know, I've actually heard that before. You know, it's, it's so difficult, and this is uh, not quite off topic, but when you say start on your own house, that's one of the things that people who serve in ministry have to be um, very cautious of because so often that, uh, people get so focused on uh, the house of the Lord that they forget about their own house. And, you know, and obviously Paul, he gives um, qualifications mm-hmm. for being a, a pastor, a bishop, or um, a deacon. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things is a husband of, of one wife. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think that, I think, I just say that I think that's important that when uh, those who are in leadership also have to start in their own home, we have to manage their own home before yeah. we can manage um, the house of God. Yes, absolutely. So this is a great example of this. So, so, so many ways Moses is unique, mm-hmm. right? So we can't just say, well, um, those who opposed Moses, well, that's like opposing a pastor today. Right, no, yeah. it's apples and oranges. It's not the same thing. Uh-huh. And yet there are applications and illustrations here that mm-hmm. even with Moses, like there was a sense that he had to make sure that his house was in keeping with, with the Lord. Right. And it's an illustration for anyone who aspires to leadership in the church or to serve in the church or just to be a faithful follower of Christ, right? right yeah. You know, it's not the charisma or the anointing that qualifies someone for ministry um, or to serve. It is just their, their character, their godliness, the way that they care for their own home. And so that's why, as you bring up, you know, 1 Timothy 3, for elders and deacons, it starts in the home, mm-hmm. and then it spills out from there. And I think this is a great illustration of that. Well, I had a previous uh, church friend who told me that your first ministry is your home Yeah. when, you're, when you are working in the church. And yeah, no, I've always tried to carry that with Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a lot of good things going on in Exodus. Is there anything to keep in mind as we read it? Yeah, again, I would just say the first 18 chapters, we see this kind of um, exodus proper, right, where God is going to come and to save his people by means of raising up a man in Moses, and he's going to begin to knock off uh, one uh, God in Egypt after another through the plagues. Passover is the key moment where it liberates the people of Israel. As that takes place, they then go out into the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai, and to, to worship God there. Uh, the Red Sea takes place. So those first 18 chapters, we see just this way of salvation that God is going to bring for the purpose of bringing the people of Israel into a covenant relationship with Him. And I look forward to having a chance to talk a little bit more about that uh, in the days ahead. Uh, but that covenant stands at the center uh, of the book. And then from there, beginning verse or chapter 25 to 40, uh, we get 16 chapters of tent making, right? <laughs> here, here. And it's like, okay, man, this really exciting book 
really just slows down right. um, and we can feel that way. We're not there yet in a reading plan, but mm -hmm. we can get there. Uh, and yet if we remember, no, like this is how God is moving in. Mm -hmm. Like the whole purpose of Exodus is how God, who, who cast Adam and Eve, cast his image bearers out away from him into the world, how he's bringing his people back into his presence and how his own presence is now going to dwell with the people of God. Like it's so important for us to see this tabernacle structure as the means by which God is preparing the way to dwell with his people once again, right? So Passover, covenant, and dwelling are kind of key ideas that we find in the book. And uh, again, as we read through the scriptures this year, we'll just see these patterns taking place again and again. This concludes our discussion of the Old Testament portion of our reading plan. As you follow along with your daily readings, if you come up with any questions that you would like me to ask David, please send them to viaemmaus at obc.org. You may hear a response in an upcoming episode. Via Emmaus is a podcast of Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our prayer is that you would read the Bible and read the Bible better. For more resources related to this episode and the gospel-centered ministry of God's Word, visit obc.org.